Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Blue Willow Bookshop, a locally owned, independently minded West Houston bookstore. Blue Willow is run by a team of opinionated, well-read women. Our staff meetings are full of laughter, our back room is full of snacks, and we absolutely love putting the right book into a reader's hands. We've got recommendations, we've got pizzazz, and we look forward to welcoming you to our happy place. Stop in or shop online at bluewillowbookshop.com. And we're brought to you by Lit Youngstown, a literary community proud to support beginning and experienced writers who seek to hone their craft, foster understanding, and share and publish their creative work. Read, write, and tell your story at lityoungstown.org. Tendinitis, plantar fasciitis, tennis elbow, that weird click in my jaw thinning hair and a thickening waistline, an inability to wear high-heeled shoes anymore, the possibility of shoulder surgery, and physical therapy for my ankle and knee. My mother-in-law used to tell me, growing old ain't for sissies. While I think I might change the phrasing a little, if you're listening today, Kathy, I think you're right. Nobody tells you how one day you're going to wake up and realize You got old. You don't know when it happened. You only know that when somebody whistled as you crossed the street, you knew they meant you. Until one day, when you realized they meant your daughter. So I'm older. What now? I guess it's my job to figure out what to do with that. Because if we're not careful, aging can start to feel like a list of health ailments. My knee, my shoulder, my gallbladder, my hip. But cultures around the world venerate old age. They celebrate the wisdom of elders in their community. Here in the States, we seem to have forgotten that. There is tremendous privilege in growing old. It means we're lucky enough to live another day. What we choose to make of that privilege, that's up to us. My guest today has set out to help all of us grow old in style. In her latest book, Radiant Rebellion, Karen Walrand urges us to reclaim aging, practice joy, and even raise a little hell. I don't know about you, but I'd surely like some more joy and radiance in my days, and even a sprinkle of hell raising. So I invited Karen into the studio to talk about all of this. Karen is also the author of The Lightmaker's Manifesto, and she's a lawyer, leadership coach, and activist. As a coach, she's helped thousands of people around the world find purpose and meaning in their lives. She's been featured on Brene Brown's Unlocking Us podcast, PBS, The Huffington Post, CNN, and The Oprah Winfrey Show. A sought-after speaker, Karen is also the author of The Beauty of Different, 
And her award-winning blog, Chukalunks, is a lifestyle inspiration and photography destination. Karen and her family reside in Houston, Texas. Karen Walren, welcome to Wild Precious Life. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so, so much for having me. So, okay. So here's the thing. I know you are here. We invited you here to talk about your most excellent recent book, Radiant Rebellion, Reclaim Aging, Practice Joy, and Raise a Little Hell. And the book. The book is fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. But first, I think I need a little bit of an intervention. Because Karen, <laughs> Karen, I'm aging. And I yeah, know the we book, all are. The, we the book all teaches are. me. <laughs> it says I shouldn't fear it. But, yeah. but Karen, I've got this arthritis situation yep. in my right knee. I gooned up my Achilles at my son's Taekwondo class. Then there's this whole perimenopause situation why am i sweating so much why is my hair falling out have you can you find my progressive lenses because i can't (laughs) see what's on my computer screen why is the music so loud at the bar i really i desperately want to get on board (laughs) with the premise of your book i want to age radiantly but so far i am mostly just raging angrily. So in case there are other listeners like me who are losing it, I'm losing it. Karen, how have you managed to embrace the passing of years with so much radiance? Wow. Well, let me just start from the very beginning and just say all the me too, girl same, all of those things. Like I just, I want to like be very clear that what you are, what you ha- you're talking to is not a person who does not break a sweat um, because, oh my God, personal summer, that's a real mm-hmm. thing. Like mm-hmm. every single thing that you've said, I completely 100% like know deeply, right? Know deeply. And uh, if anybody is coming to this book, First of all, if anybody's coming to this book to hear about the misery of aging, they're going to be disappointed. And if anybody's coming to this book to hear that the misery isn't a real thing, they're also going to be disappointed. Because, of course, there are things about getting older that are tough, right? That are difficult. My point is that we've been dealing with our bodies changing and things happening and challenges all our lives. Like, since we were zygotes, our bodies have been changing. That, that, that is always going to be the case. And for some reason, which we can get into, but for, for, for basically capitalist patriarchal reasons that we can get into, mm-hmm. we have been conditioned to believe that at some magical age, right, we're suddenly supposed to hate getting older, right? We loved it when we were kids right? We even loved, as women, we even loved getting our periods. Like, that was a big thing, right? Like, oh my God. Like, which, you know, in hindsight, it's a lot of years to be going through something that's very, very annoying, sometimes painful for people at the very minimum is is an inconvenience at the very minimal, (laughs) right? Monthly we do. So, So my point and the point of the book is that we tend to focus a lot on the negative of aging. And there are going to be challenges with aging. That is a fact. There are going to be challenges. But there's also a lot of really amazing stuff that happens as we get older. And that, to me, I think, 
we've given short shrift to. We have not paid enough attention to that. And that's really the point of the book. So I, I don't know that I am aging radiantly, but I'm certainly aging as powerfully as possible. I'm certainly aging with as much optimism as possible, with as much anticipation as possible, with as much excitement as possible. And I think we all should. All right. So I'm just going to have arthritis in my knee. Well, I mean, yeah, but, but, but. And that's okay. But it's not, it's, here's the thing. It's not okay that you're uncomfortable. What's really not okay is if you're going and getting treatment for it and people are dismissing it as, well, you're just getting older. Let's just dismiss it. That's not, that's not okay. Right. Yeah. What should happen is that people are help, help you ease your discomfort, that there's way that people do more research into it, which frankly, there's not enough research in, in aging. There just isn't, but that's not okay. And so yes, probably right now there's going to be discomfort, but also don't give up trying to figure out how you can manage through it. Like don't do that and get curious about the ways that you can manage through it. Yeah. And there is so much curiosity in your book. One of my favorite things you do is you, um, you compare like our weirdly uniquely American approach to aging. You've, you've traveled extensively and you talk about the, the way how internationally, like the reverence that people bring to the elderly in their communities for their wisdom, their experience and knowledge. I had never thought about why it was that in America, we so often just, you know, kick our old people to the curb. And so, I mean, for folks who haven't been fortunate enough yet to read the book, and I do hope they that people will all run out and get it, will you tell folks a little bit about the, the origins of ageism in this country? Well, I have to say, this was probably the biggest aha for me as I started. And, and also, I'm not a person that has ever feared aging. Like, I, it's just never been something that I've wrestled with. And I came to this book to write this book pretty smugly. Like, I really was sort of thinking, I'm just going to go ahead and write a book that's like, oh, y'all don't worry about it. It's not that bad, right? Like, I literally came <laughs> in doing that. And I was talking to a friend, and she actually shares a very similar outlook on aging that I do. And I was asking her, I said, for a book like this, what would you what would you be interested in learning? And she said, well, I want to know if we've always hated aging, right? And she goes, what, what is the history of that? And I thought, that's a really great question. So I did some research and stumbled upon an article written by a woman named Dr. Laura Hirschbein. She's a psychiatrist and medical historian. And she wanted to know the same thing. So she, what she did, which was so clever, is she decided to research popular magazines between 1900 and 1950 to see how they wrote about aging. And it turns out at the very beginning of the 20th century, right, 1900, most of the articles that were written about getting older were written by older people, people in their 70s and 80s, right? Which Makes is not sense. true now, right? It's not, you're right. Not true now. And they were like, we love it. We love being being older. We love sort of that institutional like knowledge that we have, that sort of tra- holders of tra- the, being the holders of tradition. We love that. Yes, we have the arthritis in our knee and everything, right? You know, they talk about aches and pains, but overall, it's amazing, right? Fast forward, two world wars and a Great Depression, and the government looks around and realizes that there's lots of 30-year-old men, primarily men, who aren't working, and they have these young families because there are older people who are still in the workforce and are happily working. So the government decides we need a mandatory retirement age at 65. 
so we can get all of these older people out of the workforce so these younger people can provide for their families, right? So now these older people are no longer contributing to the economy and start to be viewed as a burden on the economy, right? So there's that. Then child psychiatrists and pediatricians decide to expand their research into what happens when you get older, and they use as their benchmark, this is my favorite, five-year-olds. So if you are not as physically agile as a (laughs) five-year-old or as cognitively keen as a five-year-old who are sitting there sucking information because they're growing, then you are impaired. And they begin to start writing the articles, right, as experts. So the doctors and start writing it, and suddenly it's changing. We are this burden on society, and they're not, we're not we're not as agile as a five year old. And then by the mid century, enter Clairol, right? It's now time to start. You don't want to be perceived as a burden, so start dyeing your hair so that people don't know how old you are. And that is really, literally in 50 years, that is what changed. It, it, I wasn't kidding. It is literally capitalist patriarchy is the reason why all of us are afraid to age. I was gobsmacked by that. That is early on in your book. In addition to studying the history of, you know, how we feel about aging, you also talk about this, we have this perception that there's something wrong with getting older. But but most seniors, when you ask older folks how they're doing, uh, by and large, they're great. They are happy. They are loving life. And people with positive beliefs, I think there was a study by a, a professor at Yale, people with positive age beliefs live longer. So folks just in general are happier than we think they are. Yeah, and they yeah. also, the, the better they feel about aging, the longer that they're living. Yeah, they're called, it's called the U-curve of happiness is what they talk about it, that basically that we sort of dip sort of in our 20s, 30s, and 40s as far as happiness, and then it starts to go back up again. Um, and yes, the, um, the research shows that if you maintain a happy outlook on aging, you can add up to seven years, I think, to is what the research shows. So not only should we have an out happy outlook just because we'll feel better, but also because we'll live longer, fuller lives if we do. Yeah. So I got to fix my tood. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not as hard as you would think. It really isn't. It's not as hard as you would think. So not going to lie, I thought I felt like it was going to be hard. And then I started to read about how you went about, you know, pursuing your own, um, you know, that personal vivacity, that sparkle, just that, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people who are in midlife who are simultaneously raising children and concerned about and or caring for older parents. We just we feel a little spread a little thin. Um, We can look in the mirror and be like, why do I look much older than I than I thought I am? So what were some of the things that you did to reignite your own pilot light? Yeah, yeah. So I had these sort of same revelation. And I live in Houston, Texas. And Back in 2017, um, Hurricane Harvey, as everybody was watching all over the world, uh, hit Texas and then made its way up to Houston. And we ended up losing our home. We lost everything in our house. And so we fully had to rebuild, right? And so that was a full year of rebuild of, you know, getting builders to rebuild our house and like rebuying wardrobe and taking care of a teenager a young teenager in our house who was having to deal with having lost everything and it was it was a really stressful time and after about a year of all of that maybe almost almost a year and a half by the time by that time I looked at myself in the mirror and I had the same sort of like oh my god I'm I've aged right and then I started looking at what was it that made me look older like I just looked at my and I and I thought well 
I, you know, I don't really have wrinkles around my eyes. I'm black. And that's one of the blessings of being black, right? Is like, we don't tend to show um, wrinkles as quickly. I was still dyeing my hair at the time. So my hair was as black as it always had been. But my skin just sort of looks sallow. And I realized, oh, this is an age. This is stress. Like, like aging would be white hair, aging would be wrinkles, but this is stress. And so I thought, well, and I actually felt a little better, right? I was like, oh, stress I can deal with. Like age I can't reverse, but stress I can potentially reverse. And so I literally started doing that. And this was before I ever started writing the book, right? Was I started thinking about, okay, well, what are some things I can do just to help like get rid of the stress? And there's actually a really great book. I think it's called Burnout by the Nagoski sisters. That's great. And they talk about how stress is a like a physiological thing. Like it's not just in your head. It's you actually have a physiological reaction to it. And the best way to do it is to move, to, to kind of work the stress out of your body. So I'm like, okay, I need to have a a practice of moving, but I am not a person who likes to exercise, right? So like I bought a hula hoop because I thought that'd be fun. Um, I, I drank wa- a lot more water. Like I really tried to, I was really, really um, fastidious about getting enough sleep at night. I thought I'm going to do like just little things that I could do. Like what would it take to get six to eight hours? Like they say you're supposed to do. What would it do to get like the eight glasses of water in my body? And slowly but surely I began to look better. And I realized that I conflate or, and I think all of us do, a lot of times we conflate stress with age, right? We get to a certain age and the stuff that we see on our bodies, we think of as stress. We look, we, it is actually stress and we're thinking, oh, it's because I'm older, right? And so that's really how sort of everything began. And then the book is actually me interviewing a lot of different experts in various different fields to get their advice about what are some of the other things I could do to make sure that I'm feeling the best I can yeah, I I love these suggestions. You're, I also um read for for folks listening. Karen has also a remarkable book. This was not that long ago. The Light Manners, the Light Makers Manifesto. I why I associate with 2020, 2021 in there. Yep, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I feel like you asked some questions in that that then carried over. Um, there were those three questions about you know how can I feel healthy today. I had I had like an HCP. <laughs> how can I feel healthy? How can I feel purposeful? And how can I feel connected? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a practice that I have um, actually begun several years ago, and it's so helpful to sort of keep you on track. Um, the thing about and I you know I talk about this in the Lightmakers Manifesto, but I also mention it um, in this book as well. I think when we think about all the things that we're supposed to do, and I'm using air quotes here, we're supposed to you know work out however long every day and we're supposed to get eight hours of sleep every day and we're supposed to drink eight glasses of water every day and we probably should meditate every day and we should probably be you know like there aren't enough days to do all the things that we're supposed to do right hours in the day we haven't eaten yet we have you haven't (laughs) even eaten right so what i've done there are three questions that i ask myself and the answers to those go on my to-do list and they are how can i be healthy today how can i be um connected how can i be purposeful right? Um, And the answers to those vary from day to day. So how can I be healthy today might be like a hard hitting workout at a gym, but it might be I'm going to take a nap today, or I'm going to drink extra water today, or I'll have a salad for lunch today, or, you know, whatever it is, and I put it on my to do list so that I can scratch it out. How can I feel connected might be I'm going to call my mom, I haven't talked to her in a while, or it could be 
that coworker of mine was like really, really helpful in that meeting last week. I think I'm just going to drop them an email and say, I really appreciated your input in that meeting. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be huge. How can I view purposeful can be, how can I give back? Maybe you're going to mentor somebody who's younger than you. Maybe it's, I don't know, you like donate to a cause that's important. Maybe you research about a cause that sort of piques your interest, but something that sort of helps you tap into your own purpose. Um, and just sort of having a cadence of checking in to those things every, that to me is potentially even more important than, oh my God, I didn't do everything today. Right? Like it's sort of like, oh, you know what? I haven't done anything that's really purposeful today, or I haven't connected with myself in a lot. Like I've been checking, connecting with everybody else, but I'm going to spend a moment and in nature, or I'm going to spend a moment meditating, or I'm going to make sure that I go to church or temple to the mosque, um, this weekend, because I haven't taken care of my spirit, whatever it is, just that sort of constant checking back. Yeah, I have loved so much of that. So I did journal along with your book. What I found was those three questions, and then some of the others you ask in the book, really helped me, one, with my sense of overwhelm. Because again, I'm at that age where I have young children, and I am shuttling and chauffeuring and juggling jobs and taking care of my elderly mother. So it helped me with a sense of overwhelm, and it helped me with reframing. So, like, we have a new puppy dog. He's a great guy, but he's not wonderfully house-trained. And so I am walking this damn dog all the time. We were up at (laughs) 5.55 this morning, and I'm in my pajamas walking around the neighborhood, kind of cussing like a sailor about (laughs) why God, sleep, dog. But then I made my tea. I sat with my journal, and my first question was, how can I feel healthy today? And I wrote down many walks with the damn dog. And then I thought, I've already done one. Look at this. Like, yeah. this dog is – I've it's, it's 6.07, and I've already been out. Um, and then there were others. You know, how can I feel purposeful today? I had signed up for a shift at my son's elementary school like meet the family back to the school and it's tonight. And I looked at it on my calendar yesterday and I was so cranky for signing up for a shift at six o'clock on a Friday night when I want to be like on my couch with my kids. But I thought about it and I'm like, why did I sign up for that? And I remembered, well, he's been having a little bit of a hard time. It's a new elementary school for him. He's not loving it yet. And I signed up for it because I thought, let's go for an hour. There's going to be a bouncy house. He can feel like this is a safe place. So I took this thing that I was grumbly about, and when I wrote down, how can I feel purposeful today, I wrote down volunteering at my kiddo's school where he's been having a tough transition. For me, it's been incredibly energizing. Instead of feeling scattered, I feel focused. Instead of feeling like despondent about the day ahead, I feel like, okay, I got these two, these two things. I'm on it. I am a big journaler. And I always say, like, for me, much like you, journaling, first of all, um, like, there's no right or wrong way to journal. Like, I've had people um, that I've coached who are like, I don't journal. Like, I'm like, well, then write lists or doodle or um, like, whatever, just chicken scratch, just have a have it, use it as a scratch pad that you keep on you all the time and then write things down all day, right? Like that come to mind. Like don't don't think of like a right way or wrong way to do it. But for me, I find it one, that it's a way to spill, right? To kind of get all the gunk that's out of my head and just, and get it out so I can focus on other things. But the other thing I said, and this has to do with your reframing, I feel like 
Don't you always feel like people, like your friends will be like, oh my God, you give me such great vi- advice. And you're like, well, I can give them great advice. Why the hell can I give my <laughs> myself, right? Great yep. advice. And I feel like writing in a way helps you take yourself out of yourself and be a little more objective. And I have done things like, what should I do about this problem I'm having with, I don't know, a coworker, right? And And then like take a breath and then pretend you are giving that person advice, right? Um, I, there was a woman that a, a very good friend of mine, Valerie Kaur, who talks about she calls it her wise woman journal, and she keeps this journal on her. And she's like, whenever she's feeling tense, she sits down and she pretends like she's writing to her inner wise woman. And she starts with, sort of, how are you feeling today? Oh, I've got a pain in my, in my back. My back's a little sore. And she starts with that. Okay, tell me what your problem is. And really sort of answers and takes herself out of that sort of uh, that we can sometimes all get into and give ourselves um, advice. And I've always loved that. I don't do that, but I've loved the idea of that wise woman journal or using your journal as just a place to spill and clear um, what's going on inside. Yeah, that self-compassion piece that you write about, and I, I know others talk about, like it, I, I talked to Rachel Simmons, who's also a kind of uh, speaker, coach person out there in the world. And she said when she was first approached with the idea of self-compassion, that it felt a little like woo-woo, like crack open the kim- kombucha and let's all dance in a circle. But that the the research really does bear it out, that if we talk to our friends the way we talk to ourselves... We wouldn't have any, right? Why do we talk to ourselves? And, and that 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 um, that self compassion piece that we'll be beating ourselves up over something that what do you what do you even you would never talk to a friend like that? Absolutely. And it, in my journal, I do um, uh, the the me that I find there is kinder to myself, and and she reminds me, Paper Anne Marie. That, that that woman, <laughs> she's she is wise. She's got it she together, is, right? She's forgiving. Like she and I could wow, hang. I love that. Um, I love paper, Anne Marie. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that about paper care. I love that phrase. Yeah, there's a great um, there's a great uh, professor here in Texas. Her name is Dr. Kristen Neff, and she wrote a. She's literally written the book on self compassion. She's the researcher. I think her book is called Self Compassion, and it's really a great reframing of what it is. It, um, it is not spa days, right? Right? Like it is not that kind. It is um, about sort of like you said, speaking to yourself like you would a good friend. And also it is even better, she says, than um, healthy self-esteem. Because and when you talk about self-esteem, there is an innate sort of comparison um, with other people. I'm better than this person or I'm better, you know, and as opposed to just kindness, right? Sort of self-kindness and self-mindfulness, like understanding and, and empathy, that happens whenever we're showing compassion to another person. It's just really, I'm showing it to themselves. Um, It's a great book. I really recommend it. I'll make sure that we link to that on the, on the show notes, but yes. So the, the questions that you ask throughout this book and that about which I've been journaling have really led me to kind of realize that those mindsets are, um, it's like a work in progress. I think that's that almost that growth mindset versus fixed mindset. We think that it's just, okay, I know it. So it'll happen. But you actually do need to just do the work of yeah. knowing it, knowing it doesn't actually change necessarily behavior. That's those patterns um, and coming to a notebook or even to a conversation. I've been talking to my my husband at the end of a day about gratitude and, and what we're thankful for. And I spend 
Tuesdays with my mom, who, as I said, has been getting older and she's been having some memory problems. And on this past Tuesday, I found not one, not two, but 13 bills under her coffee table that she'd spilled and then used the oh, bills no. to mop up. And um, and it was just a thing that happened that day. And I said, hey, mom, do you want to sit and we'll work on this together? Maybe we can see if we can sort out some of these. And we spent an hour and we called and I saw how hard it is for her to mash. You know, when you have to like touch tone your password into the thing to pay the guy and and you mess and they have to start all over. I saw how difficult it is for her to physically do that. So I said, you know, how about this? I'll do the phone and then I'll hand it to you when we get to a person. And we tag teamed. At the end of that day, what I might have said before is like, oh, it was such a long day with mom. But because we were practicing self-compassion and gratitude, what I said instead was, I like that I sat with mom in what in the past with us might have been like me lecturing her or being angry at her for not remembering. Just turned into, hey, here are these things on the floor. Let's pick them up and we'll pay them together. And that I was grateful toward myself for behaving better and bringing more compassion to a situation that I have not always in the past brought compassion to. So the practice of doing these things just reframes I feel like it's almost, I know you're a photographer, so instead of looking at it like this, I'm just slanting, like just a little bit of an angle changes my entire perspective. I love this story. And what I really, and I think what is really important to to get at with the story that you just told and what I tried to get at with, um, with Radiant Rebellion is, so you had this experience with your mother, you were able to reframe it. And now here's the beauty of it. You now have the knowledge of how to handle a difficult situation with your mother for future times when things get tough. So when things get tough, you can remember when I dealt with the thing where my mom's bills were all under her table and we had to call, like the thing I did was I got curious. I realized how that affected her. And so how could I use the lessons from that experience so that the next time that I have to deal with something difficult with my mom or even difficult with my partner or my kid, I can go, you know what? I dealt with something difficult in the past. I succeeded at it. And there's a way to apply those lessons to the future. And that to me is the crux of what it means to age radiantly. I, what I would suggest for everyone who's listening to just have a practice of shifting our, our view to look at that as well, because we don't do that enough. As, a, as people, we do not do that enough. And that's what I hope. The, that's the reason I read the book, because there's so many books out there that are like, oh, and get ready for this when I know, <laughs> oh my God, menopause, and like all the bad stuff, mm -hmm. right? And there aren't enough things that focus on, there's some really great stuff out there. And how can you just sort of develop that muscle where you're starting to focus on the good stuff? Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You share stories about your own parents throughout this book. So I see examples of 
um, the people who raised you and and both you show me ways that things are going well and ways that are challenging. But you and your dad have a really beautiful exchange about friendship in the book. First off, you have a, a just a great relationship. And I've, I've read your other things, so it's really fun to see him reappear from time to time. But you found out you write that you found out recently your dad has this weekly Zoom call <laughs> with a bunch yeah. of his friends and that they've been doing it for like a decade. Yes. <laughs> and he, yeah, you asked him, I think you asked him something like, what's so special about this guys? And he said, I wrote this down. He said something like, um, quote, I think the word friendship is about more than just being acquainted with a person. It's about someone who has touched your soul and whose soul you have touched. And I think that means that they are custodians of a part of you and you are a custodian of a part of them. Custodians. That our friends, oh, that our friends are caretakers and they're even carrying parts of them and we're carrying parts of them. Oh my gosh, I am. Something difficult I think about getting older is that because of these relationships with children and parents, sometimes our friendships are just like on the back burner. Um, And the things that you write about friendship, both with your father and with yourself, I thought were really profound. So can you talk a little bit about your dad and and just staying connected (laughs) to friendship? (laughs) Yeah, my dad, my dad is something. So, um, so I'm from the Caribbean. I'm from Trinidad. And um, I, you know, I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrants here as well. And my dad, my I will just say, my father is uh, way better at cultivating and and caretaking of friends from his childhood. I'm not as good as that. Um, and I think a lot of it just simply has to do with our difference in childhoods. My dad grew up very, very poor, um, grew up pretty much in the same place his entire life, um, became an engineer. And uh, because of his his job, we moved every two years when I was a kid, right? So I didn't have the sort of um, the luxury of longevity with my friendships that my father had. Um, you know, on the plus side, I can pretty much move anywhere and and figure my way around, right? Like that's that's pretty easy. But, but it's really sort of heartening to watch how my dad has had these friendships that he's had since he was 11. He's in his 80s now, and right, since he was like 10, 11, 12. Um, and so this group of friends that he meets um, every week are a lot of the people who he grew up with. And they all grew up, like my dad has a PhD in engineering, like they're doctors. There's, I think he said it was a psychologist. I think there's an economist in that group. And they started meeting every Friday. It was sort of, they call it their Friday club. I think that's what he calls it, my Friday club. And they meet every Friday in Trinidad, but then and my parents live here in Houston and he would join them if he was ever visiting in Trinidad, but then COVID hit. And so everything had moved to zoom and they just kept it that way. So every <laughs> zoom and they always like, they used to meet in a bar. And so now when they meet on, you know, on zoom, they, they all have a beverage, right? They all have something. And then they just talk and they're, you know, they're sort of, um, they're academics and they're very, uh, you know, they, they talk policy and they talk, you know, I think, I think all of them achieved a certain amount of, um, of prestige at in Trinidad, right? And so when they talk about where's the country going, they actually have a little bit of skin in the game, right? Because they know people. And so it's really sort of interesting. And now what I think, like for me, I, I mean, I, I when he told me this story, I was a little bit envious because I don't have that. And like you, I think, um, particularly like my daughter just left um, home for college. Mine too. But like- 
Right. So that's a new thing. But like up until then, you know, it's such an interesting shift in what parenting looks like because you become more of a mentor, right? When they leave home. But when they're still at home, you're constantly worrying about all of that. Like it, there's, there are things that taste, take precedence over meeting every Friday and for at a bar with your friends. Right. So, so it, it, what was really interesting was sort of the idea of it's never too late, right. To start taking care of those friendships I've had. And I heard a lot, I didn't share this in the book, but I've heard a lot of people who are like, um, they have groups of friends where they run errands together, right? Like the point is (laughs) we're going to go grocery shopping together or whatever. And that's how they're, they're going to do it. Like that I think is a really great idea. Um, I have another friend who I actually interview in the book and he, um, he has a friend that they're, what they do is they're on the search for the best dumplings in their town. So they just go to the best every like month or something. One of them picks another one. And, and supposedly that's the whole purpose is just to choose the best dumplings. But obviously there's ways that they connect, right? So the idea of um, connecting, maybe there's like a, a pot potluck dinner that you have with another family right so that like you do that every once a month like that's what we do and i'm gonna cook and it's nobody's you don't the rule is you're not allowed to clean your house right it's like they just show up right or something like that so just sort of little things that you can do it honestly so much of what i learned in this was about building practice building cadence right like building sort of practices into your life to help take care of yourself and and it, it turns out that the people who live the best longest have really strong social connections and sort of just figuring out ways that you can start to build a cadence of connection it can be as simple as asking that how can i be connected today right that daily thing but also um like figuring out how can i just make sure that I'm having a little bit of that social time with people who I really, really love. And I think that that was a really great lesson. I'm not great at it yet, um, but it's certainly something that I'm focusing on. Yeah. It turns out I don't have a dumpling friend. So I'm writing yeah, I, that I, down. I think we right? all need Let's, dumpling friends, right? Next time Thanks, I'm Jeff. Houston, I'm calling you for the dumplings <laughs> there, but a Fair dumpling enough. friend. Just for folks listening, we're on the lookout. Uh, that's fantastic. But yeah, I think realizing that I don't know. Your needs and friendships change. I think there was a a study in your book about how young people value, value like the number of friends they have. Like I have 22 connections on this. But then people, as we get older, it's it's more the 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 depth of the friendship and the and again, the custodial nature of that. Well, and I you have so much good advice of your own, but then you have also, um, you know, activists and, and writers and leaders that you quote in the book who you interview. I mean, there were some great advice from Tarana Burke, who we all know as being the the leader of the Me Too movement. And then you quote her as saying, I never dreamed big enough that she that she that the things that she has achieved in her life and and, um, she's she's young and and doing amazing work, but that she hadn't dreamed big enough. You you quote um, Mira Jacob, who's also amazing and has been on the show. I love Mira Jacob, um, that that she didn't know to play. That she she was always justifying herself in a room, and she didn't know to just to play more. But that that bringing um, a dream a dreaminess, like dreaming big, what is possible? Moving to London, taking up rowing, and also being willing to play, trying something that you, I don't know if I'll be good at that or not. Just put yourself out there. That these um, 
these mindsets. And in, in the case of both of those women, I, they their activism and their the things they have created are changing the world. But also just taking a lesson of how we can be, I think, as we get older, we can tell ourselves stories about ourselves. I'm a person who does this and doesn't do that. But we're telling that story and we can tell a different one. And I will say, you know, one of the things that surprised me, not with the people who I I spoke with to seek advice in the book, but like people who I've spoken with about the book as I was writing it, right? Like, you know, oh, I'm writing this book about joyful aging. And, you know, it, it was so interesting. Like, you know, I, one of the things that I do, I the hula hoop, right? Like, and I'll, I post like a little story on Instagram every week, like just saying, you know, happy Monday. And it's a picture of me hula hooping while I'm taking this <laughs> off. And I'm, I, and let's be clear, I'm not a good hula hooper at all, right? Like I can't do tricks. I can keep the, the, the hoop up. But it's, it always is so funny to me how many people will be like, oh my gosh, you're hula hooping. I could never do that. I could never do that. Or maybe when I was younger, I could have done that. And I'm like, it's a hula hoop. It, it's a hoop. Like there's not, so there's so much of time things that we do and we're like, I could never, or like not, I've never tried, which is a totally different thing, right? Like I've never tried that. Wow. I, I wonder if I have the coordination to do that. That I get, but I could never, it's such a final thing. Or maybe if I were younger, like, like just try it. Like what, what is, what, what happened? And, and, and you fail, all right, you failed at hula hoop. Is that is that a big <laughs> is that a problem? Right? You know what I mean? Like like sort of this idea of exploring and again, like so much of this comes back to curiosity, right? Like just like what do I like? What's fun for me? Right? Like just figuring that out is like huge. It's so much bigger than I think we think it is. I think we think of it as frivolous, but the thing there is nothing that I do today, nothing nothing fun that I do today that didn't start with, huh, I wonder what would happen if. I love the story in the book where you tell your husband you're going camping and then you show him where you're going. That is camping. And he's that like, is camping. Yeah, camping. That's camping. <laughs> don't even start. There was no Wi-Fi. If there's no Wi-Fi, I don't care that it was a lovely, comfortable cabin that had a private bathroom and air conditioning. Air conditioning. That is beside the point. It was in the middle of the woods there was no Wi-Fi that was camping. That's that's all I'm saying. I love that so much. Oh. <laughs> hey, you know something else I was surprised to see in the book was like this section on clothing. You know, like mm, I, I, yeah. I'm like, I've been to to a, a passerby. Like, what do what do shirts and pants have to do with growing old radiantly? You know, that was such an interesting, and I I'm, I have not thought about clothes as much as I did after losing them all, right? Um, after losing them all in a, in a in a storm, in flood, in a flood. Um, the the fact of the matter, and it, I think a lot of people think of clothing as either a form of art where you wear high end like Balenciaga, you know, like the really high end and it's a for, you know, the, the couture, right. Or frivolous. Like it's not that important. It's just clothing. You cover your body. That's what, that what's what it is. And what I think, I believe that that's neither of those things are fully true. Like I think, I think certainly there is an art to sort of the high end couture stuff, but I think style at least is deeply political. I, and I, and we know this because 
of the woman who in Canada, the anchor woman who let her hair go silver and got fired for it. Or we know this every single time a black person or a black student has dreadlocks and they say, no, you got to cut them off because that's against the, the dress code or whatever, you know, like the way we show up in the world is deeply political. It absolutely is. It, it is a way that we describe who we are. In some cases, it's the way we describe what our culture is. And sometimes when it comes, when you think of things like um, a Star of David or a cross, it, it's a way that we express our, our um, religiosity, right? That, like there's a lot of items that we wear that are deeply, deeply political. And we don't really think about that. And so if that's true, then what would happen if we took control of what we are trying to express to express to the world, right? Or we're trying to express how we want to show up in the world. And so for me, it became very important to talk about clothing. There are items of jewelry that I wear all the time. You've probably heard the jingling on my arm <laughs> as we've been talking, um, which is actually a stack of bracelets that are very traditional Trinidadian that I wear. And it's very important to me to wear them. And it's rare that I ever take them off. I'm very rare. Um, so my jewelry, the jewelry that I wear means something. The colors that I wear are specifically because they tie me to my homeland or they tie to a feeling that I want to feel when I walk into a room. Um, the things that I wear are very political. And I wanted to talk about how, as we get older, things like um, what we stand for, things like what is culturally significant to us start to become more and more important. And what would it mean to actually express those through the way that we dress? And this, and that was actually a really fun um, chapter to write. Yeah, I I uh, I couldn't agree more with you about that sentiment. That I um when I got to the clothing section, I'm like I might just skip through this. You know, I gotta, uh, yeah. Um, but I you know found myself reading anyway, and I I was the kind of teenager who always wore red. When I look back on like prom dresses or power moments, I'm in cardinal. I'm in scarlet. I'm in crimson. I wanted people to notice me. I felt worth noticing, but somewhere along the way, and it's if I had to put my finger on it, it's probably my first pregnancy um, or sometime thereafter, I stopped wanting to be noticed. I wanted to be invisible because when people notice you as a parent, oh my gosh, your kid is crying in a restaurant. She's tantruming and you're carrying her out of church by her foot. Right. Um, and I was getting ready for this conversation today. I was in black leggings and a gray shirt, the same clothing I wear almost daily, the same look I've told myself is, you know, just my comfortable, easygoing style. But that chapter really made me sit with this idea of growing older and invisibility, that in this country, this this sidelining. And so for you, dear Karen, I went to my closet on my way up here <laughs> and I looked for red and it took me a minute. I don't know where yeah. this shirt is from, but folks, you can't tell I am wearing red and I am practicing what it feels like to um, to take up space because that's another thing. I'm I'm bigger now than I've ever been. And and capitalism and the patriarchy and all the things have taught me that there's something wrong with taking up space and I'm practicing that that so I've thought a ton about you spoke to the political nature of clothes but but the visible versus invisibility of women as we age oh for sure I mean I wore like color for me and now it's rare that I don't wear color but color for me five years ago 
like all I wore was black and gray and I 100% wore it not because I love black and gray, which I think is a fine reason to wear black and white, but because I had internalized that it was slimming. And if I wear it, and, and there's now I'm like, why do I want to get smaller? Like, why, why do we want to be more invisible? Especially because that's the narrative about getting older. You get older, you get invisible. I hear women say that all the time. Well, I feel so invisible. And, and there are reasons there are sort of like our, you know, social and cultural reasons why we can't but don't let them right like that's my that's that is my thing it's like what i am saying is don't wear clothes because you want to minimize yourself like don't do that wear black because you think it's elegant wear black because you love minimalist looks like that i'm all for right but like think about why you wear the clothes you're wearing like are you hiding and what is that saying like what what is that about why do you want to hide and really sort of self-interrogate i think is really really important yeah i have journaled a bunch about that this week and it's an ongoing conversation that i was so grateful for you to to bring up well we always close with just a you know a quick little round of questions here i could talk to you about your book All day. But, you know, I know that you have to do other things. And so we'll close here. The first few are just multiple choice. You just pick one. okay? Okay. All right. uh, Coffee or tea? Oh, man. You start with the hard ones. (laughs) Um, Let's go with tea. Let's go with tea. Uh, Mountains or beach? Oh, beach. That's so easy. (laughs) Beach. Dogs or cats? Dogs. 100%. Uh, Sweet tea from Texas or rum from Trinidad? Rum. Rum, 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 rum. (laughs) For sure. Uh, hula hoop or jump rope? Uh, you know, that's actually, God, I do both. Mm-hmm. Let's go with hula hoop only because I can take selfies and surf the web and listen you know, like <laughs> with my hands free. So let's yeah. just do that. Let's go hula hoop. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? You want me to pick one. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, there's no point system. You can do whatever you want. Well... Because you said band-aids, I'm going to assume you meant physically. And so physically, I'm the person who knows the band-aids. But if it's about like emotional adventure or I'm a risk taker, but probably mostly the band-aids, probably. Okay, this is a fill in the blank. Okay. If I wasn't working as a writer slash speaker slash (laughs) photographer slash former engineer slash not a lawyer anymore, but keeps my license up. So usually for that, I just say the person's job, but yours is, okay. If I wasn't working (laughs) as all these jobs and I had maybe a little magic, I would be instead a... Dancer. Ooh, I love that. I'd be a dancer. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. What do you love about where you live? Uh, uh, Here in Houston, I love that there's no blizzards, generally speaking. Occasionally there weren't. And I love... um, the food. We are a huge foodie town and I love it. We're the most um, diverse city in the country and it's reflected in the food. That for sure. All right. I'm going to have to try again on Houston because my parents-in-law live in the Hill Country in San Antonio and my my BFFs used to live in Austin and they've since moved. But I have been through Houston and sat in traffic and clearly I've not gotten off to find my dumpling friends. I always say there is no city in the country, and yes, New Yorkers, I'm, t- I'm talking to you, oh. where <laughs> with as much diversity in food that at the end of the meal, it will blow your mind and you'll still have money in your pocket. 
All right. All right. I stand by that. I'm, yeah, in Houston. Houston, I'm coming for you. All right. I like this. <laughs> uh, last last two here. What's your favorite ice cream? You know, the one that everybody like has if I'm going someplace is uh, cookies and cream. So I'll have that. But the one that's most nostalgic for me and I will have if they have it is rum raisin. Um, all right. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Last one. If we were to take a picture, a photograph of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? I would be in the Caribbean Sea, just playing in the Caribbean Ocean, in the Caribbean Sea, for sure. I love this. Oh, Karen, you have this saying. I've, I've heard, you've heard you say, I'm wildly convinced you're uncommonly beautiful. I like the person I imagine myself to be when I'm reading your books. I like the world I convince myself we live in when I'm reading your books. I am just grateful to be alive on this planet at a time when you are too. This is the kindest thing anybody has said to me. Thank you. That's so, so sweet. I really appreciate that. Well, I mean it. I mean it. My new dumpling friend from Houston. Um, <laughs> For sure. All right, folks. Our guest today has been Karen Walrinder, the author of several books, including The Lightmaker's Manifesto and Radiant Rebellion, Reclaim Aging, Practice Joy, and Raise a Little Hell. You can find them at your local library at an indie store near you. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you be good to yourself be good to one another and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey wild precious life is a production of evergreen podcasts special thanks to executive producers gerardo orlando and michael dialoya producer sarah wilgroup and audio engineer ian douglas be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.